Thank you for tuning in. And welcome to the sixth episode of the 2021 End of Summer Podcast Series, a series where I'm taking a fresh look at the seven most downloaded podcast episodes over the past year, and a series of topics that tie into a greater overall theme of issues and opportunities, I continue to see express themselves in leadership teams throughout the industry and across the country, and in both smaller and larger firms. Today's episode is a big one for all those seeking to know what's next. It's episode 34 with Renz Hayes, principal and co-founder of H&O Structural Engineering, on a more modern approach to work and management, which will follow this fresh introduction in its entirety. As I re-listen, the following five key points really stood out. Number one, what Renz and his business partner, Jeremiah O'Neill, have built in terms of a firm is fundamentally different. It's not business transformation. It's a very different business model and one more representative of where our industry is heading. Their model is designed for scale, not just growth. And its ultimate goal is to free up time for all employees to become more aware and more able to focus on delivering value, which is all done by eliminating inefficiency and leveraging automation, process, software, and technology. Number two, as leaders, we need to prioritize more time to think. Constantly being busy and focusing on our current company needs and projects doesn't give us the white space or the perspective needed to consider our future. If we were to start over as a firm, what would we do differently? What would be our goals? And how would our mission, vision, and values change? Number three, when we do think, we need to think process and eliminating our limitations. Having a clearly defined process for all we do has power. It also provides us with learning guardrails, better design project starts, and known checkpoints along the way. Just-in-time management, even if we get there, is way too late. And sink or swim needs to be a thing of the past. They're both inefficient and ineffective, add frustration, and ultimately limit our teams and our firm. Having processes and systems, as Renz describes, helps create a cultural framework for success. Key point number four, lead with both trust and outcomes. We need to share more about our business strategy and the specific outcomes we are looking to achieve on firm, team, client, and project levels. If not, how can we expect others to be fully engaged and working to help achieve them? And if we are not clear as leaders about the outcomes we're looking for, how can we put all the right resources in place? Sharing more with our employees builds trust, and building trust creates many more situations that lead to success. Which brings me to number five, focus on value. And what I really want to highlight here is H&O's approach to having passive income hours, allowing everyone to participate in both the present and the long-term success of the firm through continuous improvement and innovation. Now, as I was summarizing these notes, I kept having thoughts about another episode conversation I had with Ollie Henderson, a work-life designer and CEO. This was episode 64 entitled The Future of Work-Life. This episode was in this past year's top 10 and was very close to being featured in its own right. Ollie has gone very deep into how knowledge work has changed and continues to change and offers us a truly global perspective on this. And what struck me was how so much of what Renz and I spoke about was validated. 
What's more, my conversation with Ollie also outlined a process and a number of best practices we and our teams can begin to use today to help move us forward and closer to the place Renz, Jeremiah, and HNO sit now, plus a whole lot more about the future of knowledge work, technology, and how we can be more of a determinant factor in our own success. So taking a listen to this episode, which I'll be sure to link to in the show notes after our featured conversation with Renz, will be something you'll be glad you did as you look to design a more modern and better experience for all those you serve. So without any further delay, here's episode 34 with Renz Hayes. Thank you for tuning in. Systems, processes, quality assurance, quality control, outcomes, continuous learning, remote employees, a unifying strategy and mission, and trust. These are all ingredients for the future of work. And our guest today, Renz Hayes, principal and co-founder of H&O Structural Engineering, based in the greater Boston metro area, has not only put them to use, he and his co-founder, Jeremiah O'Neill, have made them foundational to their firm. In this episode, Renz walks us through how they approach both business scale and client success through a system that is not limited by leadership. And contrast that to how our more traditional approach of sink or swim training and just-in-time management is more often riddled with rework and inefficiency. H&O's approach is reflective of a more modern trend that can help position us for greater success as our world and industry continues to evolve. And this approach is also reflective of Renz and Jeremiah's unique cross-sector expertise and their mission to create a better experience which I'm thankful they were willing to share with us as we continue to kick off season two of the podcast. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with Renz Hayes, principal and co-founder of H&O Structural Engineering, and we'll be talking about what it looks like to lead and manage a modern firm. Welcome to the podcast, Renz. Thanks, Pete. It's great to be here. Well, I'm excited um, that you're here and to dig into our conversation today, and specifically because there's been a real shift in how we think about work and how work is getting done, and the COVID-19 crisis seems to be only moving things forward faster. And in my opinion, you represent a modern approach to management, not only because you're a new generation, but because you have just tangible experiences um, in different parts of the industry and you're willing to do new things. Um, But before we get into the material today, um, can we start by getting to know you? Can you share a little bit about you, your career, and what brought you to where you are today, as well as a little bit about um, H&O 
um, structural engineering. I'd be happy to. So again, my name is Renz Hayes, uh, co-founder and principal at h and Structural Engineering. Uh, clearly my background in education is in structural engineering. I also grew up in a structural steel fabricating and erecting company. So we did structural steel and miscellaneous iron. And for a portion of my career, after I got my engineering license, I also ran that business with my father, uh, which gave me tremendous perspective into uh, process and quality assurance and quality control. And what I realized during that time, we as an engineering field require our steel fabricators to have an AISC certification without really understanding what that meant. And what an AISC certified process entails is they need to have a very rigid process. Uh, it's written down, it has quality assurance, it has quality control, it has people accountable for each step from when a job comes in the door to when it exits. And I quickly realized how contradicting that is for an industry that doesn't isn't required to have that same internal process to require that of those building their buildings. And uh, we identified that at H&O as a real opportunity to create our own internal design process, quality assurance and quality control to create an environment that eliminated inefficiency. Uh, we leverage automation, process, software uh, and technology to really try to reproduce and automate kind of the decisions and the tasks that we have to do every single job so that it frees our time up to be more aware and thinking of how we're creating value for our clients. And uh, that's really our premise and our value um, in the marketplace to, to scale nationally. So how, how did you go from um, working um, sort of on the, on the structural steel side to moving into the, con the consulting side? Sure. So I grew up fabricating and erecting steel. And um, as I approached college years, um, I didn't want to just follow the footsteps of my father and stay just in the steel business. So I thought I'd like to know how to design these buildings that we're building and then we could, I could add value to that company. Um, and part of getting your engineering license is you have to work for an accredited engineer. So in that time period, I wanted to work on high rise design and we ended up at a large firm in Boston, which is where I met my partner and we were working on high rise and large scale developments. Um, and after that experience, I then uh, left the engineering field uh, momentarily. We were doing some work on the side and continuing to stay uh, stay up to date in engineering code and design processes, but really learned how to run a business and drive value with that exposure and leading the steel company. And then we took that experience and applied it to how we launched H&O Structural Engineering. All right, so when you launched the company, um, I know you, from our past conversations, you put um, a lot of value in mission, vision, and values. And what what's your, um, perspective on mission, vision, and values, and how does that help you from a firm leadership perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think if there's any one thing you want to get right, you want to have your mission, vision, and values right. So growing through my, uh, I guess, as I grew as a leader and really invested in in learning how to create good, positive culture, uh, work environment, organizational structure. Uh, I was reading every book under the sun. I listened to audiobooks for an hour or two a day, uh, usually around a topic and a problem that I'm trying to solve or achieve at work. Um, 
I didn't know where to start. I had accumulated years of experience trying all these different things to implement this here and this here, create this system. And, and I, I felt like it was really challenging to get traction on those. And I kind of found myself wondering, where do you start? And I got um, tremendous value out of, uh, it's a CVGA program, Certified Value Growth Advisor, which is an M&A certification. And I ended up there, it's a week long program under Ken Sanginario, uh, forgive me if I didn't say his last name correctly. Um, but he is a, he's a brilliant mind and created an amazing process. And what I learned through that is you have to start with mission, vision, and values. And when you start there, everything else starts to fall in line. So at a high level, a mission defines why your company exists, right? It gives everybody purpose and gets buy-in. You want that to be very short and concise such that anybody in your company can remember that at the, can recite that at the drop of a hat. Right. So our mission statement is a better experience. We're defining the experience we want to create for our team and we're defining the experience we want to have for our company or for our clients um, and how we deliver that. We have to make sure that we're leading and making decisions with a better experience in mind. Otherwise, it becomes too broad and vague. But when leadership makes decisions and guides the company with that at top of mind, it becomes very inherent in how we operate as a team. What a vision is, it's, an, it's painting the picture of the company you're going to be in five years. And a real critical piece here is you need to write that in the present tense. This can be, you want this to be very detailed. What type of work are you doing? What markets are you in? What are the clients you're working in? This can be a couple pages long. You really want to define the detail of the company you're going to be. Writing it in the present tense is key because you're getting your entire team to recognize that's where the company's going. And then you all agree to start acting like that company today. You don't achieve that if you don't start uh, acting and implementing the behaviors of a company that achieves the success that you're visioning. And then the next piece is values. What values do is those really guide culture and decision-making. And so you want those to build off your mission and vision. So for us, our three values are embrace growth, be a partner and be responsive. Embrace growth is really critical to our culture. Um, they need to embrace growth. We want to always constantly be challenging how we do things. How can we improve? How can we become more efficient so that we free up our own time within the work week so that we can deliver more value to our clients? Uh, be a partner. Uh, don't forget to ask your clients what's actually important to them. What are their goals? What are their hurdles? How are you overcoming them to achieve uh, their, their goals, right? And then be responsive. We, we see a lot of overwhelm in the industry, which we I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more, but that stems from poor organizational structure and process where like rework and what happens is people get overwhelmed. They don't know how they're gonna get all the work done in a week, let alone provide value to a client. So they don't have time to think about what's important to the client. Um, and sometimes they can even be so overwhelmed that they forget or don't respond to their client because they don't have good information to give them. Um, so we really make that a value because we think that's a differentiator. If we're responding to clients within 24 hours, uh, it's gonna be tough to complain about or try to state that H&O isn't a responsive, responsive consultant. Right, and you've designed your firm to overcome that poor you know, organizational structure and, and processes that are oftentimes just in, inherent in a lot of what we do in the AEC industry. Um, but when, when did you come to the realization of the importance of mission, vision, values? Is it as you were starting the firm or you, were you into the firm a little bit? 
and then said, you know, something's missing here. We're not able to articulate. I mean, when did you come to that realization of, you know, we need to just take a little bit of time out or as we're, you know, continuing to um, do what we're going to do in the company, we need to sort of develop this mission vision values. When did that come into play? Sure. So we're a little over four years. So we launched in 2016 and I would say something that's probably a little unique. We really launched um, our business and knew that we wanted to scale. So we started working on our business before we started trying to drive our business. So we were, we were creating value. My partner, Jeremiah O'Neill actually joined us at the structural steel company. So we were still helping that company grow and that gave us the time after hours and on the side. And even sometimes if we wanted to take a client meeting during the day to really work on our process and uh, start to build a business that could scale. Right. Um, Peter, what was the first part of that? I lost well, just when did you, so you were developing the processes and the systems. When did you uh, develop yes. the mission vision values? When did you know that was important? Was it at the time of launch or were you sort of already launching and said, you know, something's missing. We need to develop that. Yeah. So we, we had already launched, we fortunately had good values and kind of like an inherent understanding because we were a smaller firm, but we really recognized the importance of that in 2018. So about almost two years in is where we really refined that. Um, the key to all those, the mission, vision, and values is that they're short and memorable and that you make decisions and lead with those at top of mind. Um, if you just write a fancy mission statement on the wall or in an employee handbook and you have values that are on your website, but you never refer to them throughout your day, like they're irrelevant to your actual operation of your company. So you need to really think about, are those truly important to your success and your value proposition? And then make sure that your entire leadership team is leading with those at top of mind. And I assume it's more, as more people get brought into the fold, you know, what may be intuitive to you or, and or intuitive to you and Jeremiah as the co-founders all of a sudden we need to get other people on the same page. We need to articulate the way we're just doing things and document and put that on paper. Was that part of it too, that you needed to bring other people on board or be able to sort of have people self-select whether they wanted to be part of the organization? 100%. So a big, what gives a firm the ability to scale is you, you have to be extremely clear and drive clarity throughout an organization and how you drive value, right? How do you make decisions? Um, companies can get stuck in the small business cycle. Um, if the leader kind of keeps all their cards close to chest, makes all the decisions, is the, really the one that drives business value and how things get done, uh, you're eventually gonna hit the capacity of a leader. So if your firm culture isn't immediately trying to create processes and awareness on your, strate your business strategy to teach that, you're gonna find a lot of hurdles as you go to grow. So when we think about teach it. We, we want to build a transparent organization. Um, we want people to understand our business strategy, how we create value, um, how do we drive our bottom line, right? How do we eliminate rework and avoid scope creep? Um, how are we marketing ourselves? Like, can we articulate our value to our clients is super important. And then does our team, uh, like, are we teaching and training financial literacy? We need our, our team to not only understand our strategy, but you want to understand how your strategy connects to your profit and loss statement and your balance sheet. Because if you can't create profit and you can't uh, manage cash flow, you're going to run yourself out of a job. Uh, you need both of those to be sustainable and to continue to bring value to your clients. So right. that is really creating a foundation that's going to allow us to scale. 
and that and that's really one of the outcomes that that you you focus on like we need outcomes we we need to have growth and profits and 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 then let's back into exactly how we do that we do that with these processes and these systems we created um i'm fascinated by so you said you know coming from the structural steel side qa qc processes in place and different certifications and applying that to engineering design can you talk about your processes and your systems and and how how you went about systematizing the design in, in order to sort of at least put it on a, a more equal playing field with, with how things are actually done in the construction side. Yeah, absolutely. So what we see in our exposure to the industry, a lot of career growth happens kind of from a sink or swim environment. It's uh, companies bring on new work and they, they hand a, a new project to a, a project manager and they're expected to take it from zero to a hundred. Um, without really any guidance on how to get there. They kind of learn uh, by asking questions. They might learn by observing and working under another project manager, but they don't really have a framework to be successful. And so what you'll find in that type of organization is a lot of inefficiencies. Uh, say, there's, say there's 40 project managers, they're all gonna approach a, a project differently. Uh, which also that makes it incredibly challenging to measure how efficient you are um, and to share lessons learned. So you're not going to find ways to improve as an organization because everyone's doing their own thing. So what we created with our design process, which turns into a, a very manageable quality assurance and quality control process, is we actually wrote down how we approach new buildings and different building types. So whether that's composite steel, cast in place concrete, post-tension concrete. Uh, we do a lot of wood podium work here in the greater Boston area. So if you were to join our firm, you instantly see how we approach uh, designing a, a new podium building. What are the decisions we need to make up front? How do you, what do you do first at schematic level to design development all the way to construction drawings? Um, uh, a big key to that too um, is, so rework is a massive, um, massive loss for a lot of companies throughout the AE world and arguably most industries. So in creating a process, you're, doc you're making sure your team's advancing their design alongside appropriate decisions and not getting ahead of say their counterparts in, in an architect and in our case as structural engineers. Um, we recognize that often like about 70% of the coordination decisions you have to make on a given project are basically the same. The outcome of the decision might be different, but the same questions can be applied to a lot of projects. So we created an initial kickoff survey right off the bat that we automated. Uh, we did it using Microsoft Forms, and we actually send that to our clients to answer off the bat. And what that survey also does is it educates them on how the decision impacts their scope of work. So not only is it driving a decision, it's educating them, it's showing a level of professionalism, and it's actually helping their overhead and eliminating their risk of rework because we're all agreeing to 70% of the decisions that come up on any given job, and those are all documented and, and put in place before you even put pen to paper to start designing the project. It creates a ton of efficiency and really reduces the risk of, of rework and even scope creep. Um, in the terms of scope creep, if, if you have a written documented decision, it's tough to change that decision late in the design process. And if everyone sees that we already bought into that decision, they're gonna be aware that if they change that, that that's actually a change in scope because it is written down and documented for everyone to see. 
Right. And so not only are you sort of systematizing your process and, and not getting ahead of the team, but it seems like you're, the way it's designed too is it also supports the team and getting Absolutely. the team on the same page and, and understanding some of the, the consequences or benefits of decision A versus decision B. Yeah, you want win-win for, for you and your clients, right? So anytime you're creating a process, trying to improve your business, you want to understand how that creates value for your client. So kind of going back to our, our values and, and why we're so embrace growth is so important to us is we want to continue to challenge ourselves on how our, how efficient is our design process. Because the more we can streamline decision-making and our design process and leverage automation to do the repeat tasks that come up job by job, we're freeing up our time to actually provide value to our clients to think about how they're going to be successful. No one's really creating value if you're just putting typical details on a sheet for a given project. So how can we automate that so that we can free up those few hours per job so that we can actually drive value for somebody? And that's some of the design thinking that you put in even before you launch saying, how would we approach this? And let's document that process to create the system so that we can be efficient with the basics so that we can then focus on, the, you know, I guess the, the more challenging and the more interesting aspects of, of customizing our design. You got it. And then, so what's, what's been a really amazing thing to be a part of is like Jeremiah and I, when we were building the process for the first eight months, we didn't have everything figured out. Right. Um, but because we had, as we developed these clear mission, vision, and values and started to teach or train, I should say, our business strategy and connect how our processes impact our business strategy, it's really become ingrained in our culture. And everybody on our team is a part of how are, where, what have they learned this week? How can we improve our process, our design? How are we serving our clients, our typical details, uh, different nuances? we create space for our entire team to talk through that and document new changes that help improve our, our company. And then they, and where, where are all the, 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 without giving away trade secrets, but I mean, where, how do you, do you have a single like platform where, okay, we had this, um, a debrief after this design and, you know, there's this new way we want to, you know, integrate this X and Y and then put it into the process. Do you talk about it, agree, and then it sort of goes back into the system. And now it's a new aspect of the process that way. And, and everyone is held accountable because we're just using that system. Exactly. So we use um, Asana, which is an online cloud-based software. It's really a task-based management software. So you could use a competing software. And then it's really on the content that you put in there. But what's great about Asana is that not only can you have your design process in there, you can have um, you can track your deadlines, uh, schedule, and you can assign personnel to certain outcomes. So we also track company-wide deadlines in there so that uh, when we do review, uh, like you, you had alluded to, um, we lead with outcomes. We don't try to micromanage and tell people new tasks or how to get stuff done. Uh, we obviously have project turnovers when uh, project managers take on a new project. But other than that, we're trying to teach them the outcomes they're responsible for. And then with our design process, we're giving them a framework in which they can be successful in. And that's really what the design process is. Because if you create a framework within your company for your team to be successful in delivering the outcomes that you're selling to your client, um, you're going you're gonna to be successful, right? Uh, the design process I like to analogy I like to use it's like having uh, it's like having the bumpers on a bowling lane. You can't throw a gutter ball. You're always going to hit some pins. So if you can create a framework that allows your team to learn and grow within there, within those that framework, 
um, it's going to provide a lot of benefit to not only the organization, but the individual itself. That's going to provide a really positive work environment, learning culture, and lead to a fulfilling career for your team. So, I mean, just articulating outcomes is, is, a, is a different step, if not a big step, with, you know, we have this project, let's define the outcomes at different stages, but then furthering that there's the framework of how to get to each level of the outcome that you're looking for. Is that, is that how you, you're able to manage sort of checking in and supporting versus micromanaging because you, you hit known checkpoints along the way and, and everybody knows, you know, or how, how do you know if, if somebody on the team needs a little help or they're stuck? Is it sort of self-reporting like, hey, I, I know I have this outcome, there's four steps along the way. Are they just triggered in the framework to know what those are, or are you able to sort of do the just-in-time management, um, or is it it's more sophisticated than just-in-time because you're seeing the sort of the, the milestones along the way? I, yeah, I think just-in-time is a is a pretty poor strategy. Uh, I think you can get into a lot of trouble, and it's going to lead to to burnout of your staff if that's really what you rely on to hit major deadlines. Um, so absolutely. So when you have a framework that's managing deadlines and people that are accountable and setting that, showing them that they're responsible for those outcomes, um, you're creating a framework that you can also kind of get a quick glance from a dashboard level to see are things in motion to hit those deadlines. Um, I think another big part of this too is creating a an organization of trust. If you if you're leading with these values and and making sure like you have a uh, a lessons learned environment you want, uh, we want to embrace growth, right? We want everyone to be um, a lifelong learners and really embrace that process. We're not trying to strike people down if they make mistakes. We want the, we want to reframe those and look at it from a different lens. Any kind of mistake that happens in our company is an opportunity to improve. So when you have those, when you create that type of culture, people aren't afraid to say that they need help. If you're in a, if you're in a like more of a dictatorship type organization or like a sink or swim, everyone's for themselves, like people are really going to hesitate whether you don't think they should hesitate. They're going to, they're going to be afraid to say that they were wrong or make a mistake or they're not going to hit this deadline and they need help. And they might ask too late when, like you said, a just in time strategy. So this, that environment really speaks to uh, giving our team the confidence that we trust that they're doing everything they can to deliver the outcome. And if they do need help, they really need help. And we want them to be proactive about it. Cause at the end of the day, the most important thing is that we deliver the outcome that we're selling to provide value to the client. All right. And you've connected them with, with that sort of the, the financial piece. How, how do you, how do you measure and manage performance as you're, as you're executing the projects? So we do, again, I, I guess it's, it's really outcomes, right? So, we're selling certain value propositions. We want to understand the goals of our clients and are we delivering that? Um, and one of those is a better experience, right? So are we being responsive? Are we being a partner? Do we ask them for their goals? Do we know what their hurdles are and what are we doing? Are we communicating to help them overcome those hurdles to achieve their goals? Um, so in a qualitative way, uh, we're actually launching client surveys to better measure that client experience now. Um, in the, in the other way, in, in terms of measuring performance, I, I think when you have this type of strategy and you have a, and you have a framework for your team to be successful, um, we can look at it from pretty high level uh, metrics on whether we're being successful or not. So we, one of our key financial indicators is revenue per FTE, which is full-time employee equivalent. 
And so we know if we're managing a certain amount of revenue per employee, we understand where we're going to be financially at the end of the year. So we're managing our revenue. We're trying to forecast to understand where we're going in our growth so that we're making sure we're bringing on staff that can adequately support that revenue growth. Because the last thing we ever want to do is we don't want to take on work that we can't execute and especially execute to the value that we're selling. That would be detrimental to our brand. So we are very thoughtful in obviously our organizational structure, but also our growth path into making sure that we're doing that responsibly. We're putting our people in a position to succeed. Right. And so, and, and, sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say any, any measurement of, you know, utilization rates or anything like that, or is it just, it, it's outcome based? I mean, how do you manage little week to week um, outside so, of a big picture results based outcome based? It, it is very much outcomes based and we do. So we do have project budgets. We do everything on fixed fee. Um, our hourly agreements, I think, can be pretty conflicting because that doesn't mean value is necessarily aligned between us and our clients. We want to make sure we're understanding the value that we're delivering. We want a fee based on that value. And now both of our interactions and our execution is lined up with that. Um, we do, we obviously understand utilization rates and those sort of things, but that's not something we drive. Like billable time, if we're delivering on the value and somebody does it, in half the time that doesn't necessarily like that's obviously driving a really good bottom line and a fixed fee but if they are like say somebody's utilization rate is low it's like 70 percent but the 30 percent that they're non-billable has been improving our process and our automation that then makes everybody else's utilized hours that much more productive they've done a tremendous value for our team so we like to look at those, I like to call those passive income hours, right? If you have an opportunity to work on a process or a system that makes, that improves your organization, that hour spent on developing that new system never stops working for you. That's a, that clock's gonna run for the rest of the organization's life cycle. Um, when you're doing actual work, like you worked a billable hour, that, that hour is never working for you again. So we like to separate good overhead and bad overhead. I like to call it productive overhead. So if you can find time within your week that's productively growing and improving our business, that's going to pay dividends for the life cycle of the company, we're all for it. Um, and I think that's a, there's a really big balance there. And when we as a team start to look at um, like production level, I sorry, coming back to the outcome conversation, like sometimes like production on a given job can be, we had a bad fee. We didn't manage expectations well, and we want that feedback, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was solely the project manager's responsibility. So it's really a team environment. We want everybody to be bought into being successful as a team. Um, and because I think individual, if you try to separate a company into individuals, your performance on a given year could be based on the simplicity of the jobs that you got within the company and the clients that you worked with. Uh, not saying that we don't want to improve individually, and we certainly measure that and understand our budgets. Um, but it's not, it's not the end all be all for us. We really are looking at the organizational performance. Right. And creating that situation where even if the outcome was, was delayed or missed or something happened, you, you've built up that, that framework and the communication so that you're understanding exactly why that was the case. And you can sort of work that out of the system or work it into better business development, um, better conversations up front. So you'll, you'll actually know what the issue is, not just, oh, we had a write off. Let's move on. Do, be, do better next quarter. Something we haven't done that we're actually 
actively building right now is kind of a, a deep, an internal debriefing on a job. So we're going to start implementing that at the end of the design phase and at the end of the construction phase. And so we want to be reporting what went well and what didn't go well, or like what could we have improved on. And I think that feedback, like throughout the company, is going to be super valuable to continue advancing our process and system. Right. Well, one other thing that you do um, um, that, that's interesting is that you have what I would say like more of a flexible hybrid workforce in that you have um, remote employees and office-based employees. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like what, what's, what's the breakup and why did you go with sort of also remote employees and how, how do you manage remote employees versus office employees? Yeah, that's great. So we actually elected to grow our firm about three years ago, um, about so a year into launching our company, we recognized that there was only a small pool of structural engineers within driving distance of Boston uh, that were aligned with our competencies as structural engineers looking to do high rise and large scale developments uh, that also aligned with our values. And all of those people that align that would fit that criteria were already employed. So it was going to be a long road to start to acquire um, enough talent within the city of Boston. And we saw the remote work world coming. We thought it would happen a little slower. COVID kind of accelerated things, but we saw that becoming more prevalent over the next decade. So we elected to build our business and organizational structure to allow people to really work from anywhere. And we quickly opened up our applicant pool to the entire US. So you might think there's a total of 70 people within Boston that might align with us and, and fit the competency requirements. Um, and maybe 40 of those are a good fit and it's gonna take a long time, but opening up to the entire US completely expands uh, the talent pool, allows us to really find people that truly align with our values and our mission. Um, and leverage new talent like people, different sectors throughout the company, different geographic regions have uh, different construction preferences. Some cities are more post-tension concrete, concrete. Other cities might do a lot more just regular cast in place concrete. Boston's primarily a structural steel city. So it's interesting to get the different uh, market breaths from all the people that have joined us across the country. Um, so if you, if you, if you put out a flyer or, connect with somebody somehow, you know, indeed, or whatever platform you use and you connect with somebody, what is that process to sort of find interview, select them, onboard them, integrate them when they're in Seattle and you're in Boston? How, how does that, how does that look? That's a good question. Um, something we've actually spoke a lot about is I think a remote work environment highlights organizational flaws and inefficiencies. So if you're struggling to interview or onboard staff, it's likely because you don't have a documented approach to how you're going to do both of those things. So take a, use this opportunity as like it's an unbiased reflection of your organizational processes trying to work in a remote environment. It really helped us grow and improve how we did things. Uh, we don't treat remote workforce any different than if you're sitting in our office. And we leverage like we're having this conversation today through Zoom. Uh, we do the same thing with our employees that are across the country. Um, so in our interview process, we have a very structured interview. 
Um, you want to have repetition in a planned interview cycle so that your team becomes more aware of the conversations and the values that you're looking for throughout that conversation. So we have a four-step interview process. And instead of in-person, you just do a video screen call to kind of get that same thing. I think uh, the video is very important in those conversations because a lot of um, intent in relationship building is lost just through verbal communication, um, expression, and that sort of thing can really drive a lot in a relationship. You can learn a lot about somebody building there. Yeah. So, um, so you, you have employee, how, how does it, is it, did you think it was odd not meeting people live before they became employees or did you in the early days will fly out to meet somebody and have some one-to-one in person or have you, or was that just really not an issue? I mean, we're, we're going to bring somebody on. We're going to have enough of a process that we're going to get to know someone. Um, I mean, we can always make a decision later to let somebody go if it really wasn't a fit. I mean, how, how did you enter into that with the, we'll make this work. It's a new era. Or did you sort of one foot in and oh, we're going to go out and meet them anyway? Great question, Pete. Um, so we actually have employees on our team that have worked with us for uh, almost a year, 11 months or so. Uh, we hire them actually at the time through a phone interview, no video conference call. And then we met them in person for the first time when we flew them in for the holiday party. Uh, what really made us make that leap into that work environment or that engagement uh, was really a matter of necessity. When we had we had clarity on the type of company we were going to be, right? We wanted to scale nationally. We wanted to achieve, um, we wanted to work in the high rise and large scale developments. When you have a vision of what your company's going to be in five years, some of those short-term decisions that may have otherwise been daunting, right? Because that's a real commitment. It was necessary for us to take a step towards achieving our vision. It became like, it, it was such a crystal clear decision. We weren't, attra- we weren't finding the immediate talent that we needed locally. And we were able to source really good applicants nationally. And yes, they couldn't be with us every day in the office, but we took it upon ourselves that we needed to make that successful. And it was really going to be a key to our ability to scale and achieve our vision. And do you find it easier, much easier now, even just three years, um, only three years ago, you were, you know, remotely, you know, maybe even over the phone talking with people hiring now, just in three years, do you find it so much easier uh, and more comforting to hire remotely? Yeah, absolutely. Like anything, you kind of lessons learned, right? You, you kind of, you learn as you go, but uh, we definitely have a level of comfort. Um, it's really no different than having somebody in the office. Uh, I would say um, entry level employees present a little bit of the, their kind of a hurdle, especially for a small and mid-sized firm. I think for entry-level people get so much value out of being in an office and learning from career professionals around them, hearing them on the phone, seeing the problems that they they overcome and how they approach them and just having them as like a very quick reference. Uh, they really lose that value in a remote environment. Um, I think for those individuals to be successful, it would have to be at a larger company and that company would have to have a very documented program on how to get them up to speed and almost someone internally that their sole responsibility was to like training and onboarding entry level people to make that successful. Um, when, when we think about actually onboarding entry level people, we try to think of like, what are the tasks and competencies that they can develop 
uh, quickly that provide a return to not only our company, but actually drive value to our, cl our clients, right? Because if you can create an onboarding and training program for entry level people that teach them a, uh, a skill set and competency that actually drives value, that allows them to become productive. That's going to offset the cost of training them and developing them in additional competencies. Right. And have most of your remote hires, have they been more senior? experienced talent or have they been a mix of more junior talent and senior talent? Yeah, that's a great question. So to date, most of our remote hires have been uh, PE level or at least approaching PE. Um, we do have a couple younger um, engineers that have like, about three years. They're not quite at their PE level, but they, uh, they really, they connected with us and they kind of proved that they had the skill set to be productive in that environment. Okay. So they're kind of a liar, but yeah, we look for for experienced people that can more or less kind of take on work and start to be productive right after that. Okay. And you have a system that brings them in and this is how we do things. So you're able to sort of onboard them technically with, with what you're doing and how you're doing it. It would be extremely difficult without it for sure. Right. How, how has COVID changed things for you or has it really not changed anything? Uh, other than like our, our local staff that was in the Boston office every day, nothing operationally has changed. Like we haven't had to make any cuts. We didn't make any changes to our organizational structure, or how we operated, um, everything. We really came into this with, uh, I think, really positive organizational structure and sound vision and growth plan. Um, obviously, growth is uh, slowed down slightly. Uh, I just think a lot of developments tied up right now, whether it's in in identifying the terms of an equity deal to to allow that project to move forward or in city approvals. Um, I think people are, are really uncertain about the short term. Long term, uh, I would say COVID almost presents opportunity for us, right? Like this, we're taking this time to reach out and build uh, relationships with other engineers that could potentially join our team as we scale. Um, and using this time to connect with clients, see how they're managing the COVID, sharing some of our best practices and what we've learned to help them become more successful in this environment. Um, and as we grow nationally, this really helps us overcome some of the educational hurdles we were identifying um, in large scale, like national developers and architects, like they're, they're fairly comfortable working in the remote environment because they'd rather stay with the same design team than try to find a new design team in every region they put a building in. Um, but you really don't have an opportunity at the mid-rise or um, say small, smaller scale developments to get into a new geographic location without an office. And I think this COVID environment is going to show people that you can be successful in a remote working relationship and that could almost accelerate our, our geographical expansion. Have you, I mean, other than, you know, the Zoom and the Microsoft Teams and, and the, the, the platforms you use from a workflow and production perspective, are there any other new technologies with just working remote or when you couldn't go to sites? Are there new technologies that you're using that may be driven because of COVID that you think are just going to accelerate or make remote work more efficient moving forward? Um, virtually, I would say one thing we did three years ago that I would really encourage companies to look at is if you still have a physical server in your office, that is definitely going to be a challenge for you to, to work in a remote office environment. So we have all cloud-based servers, whether that's on Amazon, Google, or Microsoft platforms. Um, and that allows us to really, we can, we can uh, gain access to all of our company documents from any computer 
Um, obviously, you have to have security protocols to make sure that you're not uh, at risk, but it, it really gives us the flexibility to work from anywhere. Um, so, all right, so something I see coming in the industry is how construction administration and site visits are executed. Um, Right now, the only linchpin to our growth with remote work is we still need a certain presence in the area that we're servicing because we need people to do site visits uh, for controlled construction projects. Um, I really see technology like Matterport or competitors where they're taking 3D images of the site uh, that can download to virtual software that allows you to walk through the site on your computer. Um, I think that would provide tremendous value to general contractors, design teams, and therefore owners because it can accelerate decision-making process. You don't have to coordinate a time for your design team to get out there. If you have that technology on hand to document what's built on the project that day, and you can use that as an, as an information exchange to identify and make decisions and solve construction coordination items. Right. How, you know, for, for leaders out there who may you know, have built the practice, you know, with more traditional um, employees and are looking to embrace more of a remote, remote employee perspective, either the hiring and always being remote or, you know, from work from anywhere perspective, any advice you have for, for leaders who want to transition and be more successful in that environment? based on how you've been able to um, design for that environment coming out of the gates? Uh, I think the first thing I would recommend to any company that hasn't uh, invested is really investing in mission, vision, and values. The, the remote stuff and how you actually operate as a company is one thing, but I think getting clarity on why you exist, where you're going, and uh, the values that guide decision-making and culture is paramount to anything else in your company. If you have those things right, your team is going to overcome a lot of organizational flaws to help you become successful. Um, from there, like in a remote environment in this COVID world, I, I think continuing to teach um, like your business strategy and, and really understand and be able to articulate how you provide value uh, is super important because that'll allow you to lead with outcomes and guide your team. Uh, like if you can articulate to them how you're providing value to your clients, they're going to be able to articulate to the to their counterparts at your client office and help you achieve the outcomes that you're actually selling. And from there, like creating that environment of like a learning environment that allows them to like grow and prosper and, and feel like they're contributing to creating the framework that you desperately need to become successful. Um, those are to me, the, I don't think there's any other way to, to really build that culture of learning and trust and, and success. Right. It's really a partnership at that point, you know, not in a business sense of the word, but in a production sense of the word. We're in this together and we're overcoming any challenges together and we just we're having feedback. We're sharing yeah. feedback. I think as a, a leaders that kind of struggle with that, I think they'll find that it's extremely relieving uh, once you start teaching your team and training them on those that perspective of operating a business they're going to start to buy in and provide value and help you see new ways to improve the organization. And that's going to be a really freeing, uh, that's going to be very freeing for any or owner that feels like the entire weight of the company is on their shoulders and they're working 80, a hundred hours a week to, to stay afloat and to get their job done. Why do you think so many leaders or leadership teams 
struggle with mission vision values um, or understand its importance or even if they understand its importance, don't lead with it? Uh, what, what do you think the holdup is in, in, in the AEC industry? Yeah, in the AE industry, I think probably in all industries, um, I think it's really a commitment to understanding why. Like for those that are listening to like say this podcast and, and hear us talk about the importance of mission, vision, values, and and you're thinking like, oh, that's lip service. I've tried that before. It doesn't work. It's because the behavior didn't change to align with the mission, vision, and values. Like it takes a long time to really be able to make that those concise statements that are really true to how you provide value. And once you get those right and double down and make sure you're leading with those and making decisions with those, that's when real change happens. Um, that's a really difficult thing to see if you haven't completely invested in like trying to improve your organization. If you've largely just been working in your business, executing work, trying to get new work and then get it done to hit a deadline and then go on to the next job, really just going project by project. Um, you really got to create time to start working on your business. And once you invest in learning and gaining that perspective, you start to see the opportunities that are out in front of you. It's really hard to see the opportunity cost if you haven't invested in learning what a good organizational culture and structure looks like. Once you become aware of that, uh, it's so hard not to see that. I honestly struggle going the other way. It's really hard for me to work sometimes on the details within the business because I understand so much of the organizational value we're creating by working on the business. And that's where I try to spend most of my time. Right. Well, well, well said. And, that, and that's a great way to, to close the episode. But before we do, is there anything else that you'd like to share um, on the topic of modern firm management um, or leadership in the AE space that we haven't already talked about? Uh, I think really our, the, the message I would drive home is if you can lead with trust, I always like to, you want to provide trust first. Um, and instead of trying to say that people need to earn it, um, in the remote environment in particular, uh, I think any managers um, are going to have a tendency to want to check up on their team more. Maybe you have like a, a virtual happy hour, but you might check up periodically more on what are they doing? Are they staying busy at home? Are they getting their stuff done? Um, just think about the message that that's sending them subconsciously even if you're not intending to be overwhelming, like if they're doing everything they're supposed to do and providing value, if you're constantly asking them, are they doing what they're supposed to doing? They're thinking like ownership, leadership managers, don't trust me, like what am I doing over here? Uh, it's gonna be very counterproductive to what you're actually trying to achieve. So if you can think about like, if you're looking to continue building relationship with your team, ask them more about how are they doing? How are they feeling? Like what hurdles are they facing? Don't just ask them if they're getting their jobs done because it's going to be counterproductive to what you're actually trying to achieve. Right. And if you had a system in there that actually wrote down who's doing what and who's responsible for it and where things stand based on the outcome, you would kind of know that anyway. And so your interactions are going to be more non-direct process related. You wouldn't even have to ask. And once you actually have built the trust with your team, they're going to come to you when they need help. You're not going to have to wonder because you led with trust first. And that's where I, I get to tie it back to leading with outcomes. Like if somebody's not working every minute of the day, as long as they're getting their work done and delivering the outcomes and values that we are saying are important, then they're executing everything we're asking them to. They don't have to be available to pick up a phone call from me at 10 a.m. 
Right. And certainly more reflective of sort of modern leadership um, and how things are likely going to look moving forward when we leverage technologies and processes and systems that you've helped accelerate forward. Um, you know, again, partly due to your experience just in our industry, but in a different aspect of our industry. So I'm real thankful that you came on the podcast today to share this. How can listeners get in touch with you to learn more about what you're doing in H&O? Uh, we're on Instagram and LinkedIn, and you can find my personal LinkedIn account, obviously. Uh, my name is Renz Hayes, H&O Structural Engineering. And our uh, company website, we'd uh, encourage you all to go there. Love your feedback. Uh, it's hayesoneill.com, H-A-Y-E-S-O-N-E-I-L-L.com. All right. And we'll put links to all those in the show notes too. So, uh, well, thanks again for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Pete. It was a great time. All right. Take care. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please also share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to continue to get us established, and I truly appreciate that. And it also helps to get the word out to others so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.